All right, we're going to be studying, starting the flood today, the flood narrative. So I'd invite you to turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6. This begins in verse 9. Of Genesis 6. <coughs> and the, the Hebrew section, as it's divided up, um, the Toledot, if you've been with our study at all, the division in the Hebrew uh, Old Testament actually goes <coughs> excuse me, from Genesis chapter 6 through uh, the end of chapter 9, 929, but the flood narrative really is 6, uh, 9 through 919, and the last 10 verses function as sort of an addendum or a conclusion like we've had so far in a lot of these sections there. So this flood narrative, everyone knows the story of the flood, right? This is probably the most well-known biblical story worldwide. Uh, It's the fodder of nursery decorations. And in every, everywhere you look, Noah and the ark and the animals two by two, this is very, very well known. And there is good reason for it being so well known. It is one of the longer narratives found in the Old Testament, single narrative found in the Old Testament. It is significant that we basically in chapter 5 had about a thousand years of human history. And then in this, these next three chapters, we'll actually have about a year of human history. So it is very significant that the author Moses decides to slow right on down and to give us some very strong details about this event. So it is important. Um, if I was to preach, one commentator said this, and I think he's correct, you have to preach the flood narrative as a whole, because it's one big idea. And so if we were to do that, and I agree with him, but if we were to do that, we would be here for another couple hours, maybe two or three hours to really get everything in here. So I will be dividing the sermon up into three sermons, part one, part two, part three. This Today, we are going to look at the holistic nature of it, and we're going to read the whole account. It'll take about 10 minutes to read the account, and we're going to look at that today. So before we read it, um, let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us today as we come to your word to be open, to be thoughtful, uh, to consider the truth that is in there, not just the factual nature of what we'll read, but also, Lord, the theology that you teach us, what you want us to know about you, to love you, and that we may go and serve you because of that. Help us today to, to understand this and to apply it well to our lives. May your spirit work in us today, today <coughs> and work in me as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I promise you, I don't know what just happened. I, <coughs> it's not COVID. I just, some dust in the air. Let's begin reading in verse 9. This is the beginning of the Toledo. This is the word genealogy. So this is how the flood narrative begins. This is the genealogy of Noah. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits. It's width 50 cubits. It's height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark, and you shall finish it to a cubit from above, and set the door of the ark in its side. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, and of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, and you shall gather it 
to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. You shall take with you seven each of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female. Also seven each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth. For after seven days I will cause it to rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood waters were on the earth. So Noah with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now the flood was on the earth forty days. The waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth, and the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upwards, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man. All in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, and all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep And the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained, and the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the waters decreased. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned to the ark to him, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the earth. And the dove came to him in the evening. And behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return again to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply in the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord 
and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, of every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast will I require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply it. Then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. There's a lot that is often said about the flood story, the narrative, in its connections to other ancient myths. Uh, you maybe are familiar, familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh. Uh, most high schoolers at some point read that or read of that in their career. Um, Sumerian myth, uh, the Atrahasis epic is an ancient Babylonian myth. These abound, and it's interesting about all these and why they're often brought up when we talk about the flood is they, they have a very interesting flood narratives. These ancient civilizations all have this narrative about a great flood that covered the earth and a solitary man or in Bo's other two epics, several people. Um, for example, in the, uh, I think it's the Atrahasis epic, uh, the Noah figure, and all the sailors, they had a bunch of sailors, a whole crew, and, and they all survive. But it's fascinating, right, that you have these ancient accounts or these legends that seem to line up very closely, at least in its broad sense, with what the Bible has here. And of course, this has caused a lot of liberal or modern um, scholars to say th this just means that the Hebrew story, the Hebrew account is just the Hebrew myth to go along with the uh, Sumerian myth and the Babylonian myth and it's just another one of the myths of ancient times. Um, it's not. Okay. And most scholars, when you re start reading about this, they go into great detail to kind of show all the similarities but then all the major distinctions and we're not going to do that. Um, there are plenty of resources you can find that could do that for you. What's fascinating to me as I read this story, though, that is very different than those epics or those myths, is, and, and, and I've got to be careful how I say this because it could be misunderstood, this really isn't a record of a supernatural event. Um, aside from animals coexisting for about a year, everything here is God's judgment through natural means. Right? He builds a boat out of wood and it makes sense and its sizes make it, the size of it makes a lot of sense. And it, there's a lot of water. Well, how could it rain? Well, the water of the fountains break out. I mean, 
Um, scientists are talking about a super volcano, that same sort of thing that could happen. I mean, everything about this is very natural. God's judgment is behind it all, but it is a very big natural disaster that God ordains. Now, that doesn't mean that if something is supernatural or miraculous, it's not true. It's myth. I don't mean that. But what's fascinating is when you read a lot of those epics, they're far more different than this one. You know, it's, it's multiple gods having battles and getting irritated at people because they're too noisy and it's keeping them awake at night. And so they kind of try this and try this and that doesn't work. So finally they try a big flood and maybe that'll keep these stupid humans quiet. That's, that's, that's the way the stories read, that kind of thing. That sounds a lot different. In fact, in, those, in the Atrahasis and the, and the um, Epic of Gilgamesh, we actually, neither one of those actually gives any reason why the gods flood the earth. They don't talk about the wickedness of man. It's just they're irritated. And so when you do put them side by side, what may not be, may be the same is that these ancient epics have this idea of a flood judging man or killing mankind. <laughs> but they don't have the divine element that is consistent with the entirety of Revelation. And that makes this really unique. One author, uh, Alan Ross, said it this way, though, in comparing him, and I won't, this is the last thing I'll say about this before we move on, but he said, interestingly, the biblical ark appears to be far more seaworthy than the monstrosities the other stories describe. And it's true. In fact, I just, I read an article this week from the Smithsonian's, a couple of non-believing, non-Christian scholars a while back said, I wonder if this ark would work. So they did all the scientific measurements and things, and they said, wow, this is a really good boat. This thing would really float in water with all the weight of all these kinds of animals on it. And of course, they ended with, of course, that doesn't mean the myth is true. It just means that it's possible. But it's just very unique how we read this story and we think, Somehow we read and we think, wow, this is major, this is big. But then when you get into details, and you see he gives specific dates, years in which this happened, specific descriptions for the building of the ark, scientific explanation for how it could happen, you realize that reads exactly how something from history would read, not how an epic, a myth would read. There are multiple resources you can look at for that. In addition... I am not a genealogist, I am not a scientist, I'm not an apologist, and to be honest, to the chagrin of probably some of you, I have no interest in those things. I'm just not that guy. I'm not, I, don't, I don't really care about scientific documentaries, it's not something I get into. My wife and children like that stuff, I don't. I'm a word guy. I'm a, the, I'm a theologian. I'm a language guy. That's what gets my curiosity going. But there are so many good resources out there that talk about the scientific or the geological issues that relate to this flood narrative, Christian-based materials. There are many of them. I'm going to recommend two of them, and then I'm going to tell you that's not what we're going to be focusing on at all in these three sermons. Um, Answers in Genesis has been around for a long time, answersingenesis.org. It's fantastic, especially from an apologetics standpoint. It argues for the veracity of the flood, for the, and, the, and uses many people on their staff are scientists and geologists and all this sort of stuff. And they do a great job. And so I say, if you wanted, like, hey, how did the fountains break? And what's all this? I'm not your guy. They are. Okay, go, go to the website. Look up that sort of stuff. Um, the Institution for Creation Research. This is a far more scientific-based organization. It's not as heavy in the apologetics as Answers in Genesis, and they're kind of my favorite one, but ICR.org, fantastic. They do this same stuff, and there's like five or six others really good organizations that do this sort of stuff. So you don't need me to wax eloquent and things I don't know anything about. Um, but my takeaway is that the multiple ancient civilizations that have flood myths, by the way, it's not just those ancient Sumerian ones. The historians have discovered flood myths from uh, uh, Venezuela, um, from Africa, from uh, uh, New Guinea. So it's all over the world, there's this like, idea that there was a great flood that covered the earth. Logically, that would make sense if there was a great big flood that covered the whole earth. This is true. This is a true account. But as I said, I am... Decidedly a theologian in biblical languages, my purpose is to lead the church to know God, love God, serve God, and so we will be studying the flood account with a decidedly theological focus. What my goal is to see what's God doing here? What do we learn about 
our King, our God, our Lord? What do we learn about ourselves? What do we learn about how we are to relate to Him? This is what my focus is going to be. So, we're going to start where we always start in these great Hebrew texts with the literary structure of the flood narrative. You would not be surprised for me to tell you, if you've been in our study for any amount of time, that Moses knocked himself, knocked one out of the park here with the literary structure in the Hebrew. So, he penned that entire narrative that we read, he penned that entire thing as one massive chiasm. So a guy named Gordon Wenham, first of all, remember a chiasm, that's where like there's ascending lines of parallel thought, and then there's a main thing that they're pointing toward, and then descending lines of parallel thought to each of those ideas. Uh, Gordon Wenham, who's the preeminent uh, theologian regarding Genesis, he actually got down to the nitty gritty, and he discovered a chiasm on the story that is like 15 lines of ascending thought leading to like this middle thing and then 15 lines. And, and I was like, oh wow, he sort of like really like, he had to have made some of this up. And so I went through and I like compared each line and looked at the scripture and I was like, wow, this isn't contrived at all. This is exactly what Moses did. And Mr. Wenham discovered it. This is great. But I thought it wouldn't be that feasible for me to say today in my 30 points in our outline. So... So we need something a little bit more manageable, you know, than this, this 15 lines of parallel thoughts. And just a quick little notice that maybe you, did you see that at all when we were reading it? How he started with the violence, or started with Noah, his sons, and violence. And at the end, he talked about what you do, you, the, what you do when people are violent, like, like the law against murder and then his sons, and then Noah. Like that little detail is all woven. Those little details of every thought is woven through Moses. And I, I got to say, I know the Holy Spirit inspired the writing here, but Moses was a theological and literary genius in his writing. So a guy named Anderson said, let's, let's kind of pare these down a little bit. And so he did as well. He, he, he gave, um, well, 10, but really 12 total lines and a 13th middle line. And that still is kind of big for me in our study here. Um, and so this was his idea, uh, Mr. Anderson. And then, then they noticed another chiasm. By the way, I, I'll make these available if you want them. I'm, these are just for illustration. We'll, we'll focus on one in a moment. And there's another one you may have noticed. You notice all the numbers in the flood? Seven days of waiting for the flood, then seven days of waiting for the flood mentioned again, then 40 days of flood. 150 days of water triumphing, 150 days of water waning, 40 days wait to get out of the ark, seven days wait, seven days wait. Like, that's where people started first noticing the parallelism. Wow, like the numbers are parallel in here. And this is a literary structure. Uh, This isn't necessarily that this is the timeline of it. Um, Some of this, the numbers are repeated just for, to make it parallel. The first two seven days is really only one seven days. It's just repeated in the narrative so that we have some literary parallelism. So we kind of have a big poem here is what we have. Did you ever really consider that the flood story is one massive Hebrew poem? Um, It is. So there's all these ways we could look at it. But as I said, my focus is theological. So I sat down this week and I said, okay, can I develop a theological outline? One that focuses not on just the events happening or the numbers, but on the theology What's going on with God and man in the text? And so this is the chiasm we will emphasize. And these colors I have coded here, these are the three sermons um, that we're going to look at in it. We'll look at three parts of the chiasm each week. And so let me just walk through this. What we'll find in chapter 6, 9 through 10 is the righteous man and his sons. And then the narrative will move in verse 11 and 12 in contrast to the corrupt earth and its violence. And then in chapter 6 through 7, 9, we'll focus in on the ark of salvation and its provision. And then the largest portion of the narrative, beginning in 7, 10, describes the devastation as the floodwaters rise. And then you have this little middle section right in the middle of the narrative. And every chiasm, every scholar, every theologian identifies this as the middle and the main point. God remembered Noah. And so we see God's faithfulness, God's sovereignty right in the middle of the whole thing. 
And then we'll see the receding flood. And as the floodwaters recede, there is hope for humanity. The flood narrative will conclude then with the altar of worship as Noah and his family leaves the ark in its pleasure, the covenanting God and his mercy on mankind, and then it closes with the blessed man and his sons. Every theologian, as I said, recognizes 8-1 as the emphasis of the flood narrative. The story of the flood is not primarily about the interesting structure of this ark of gopher wood. Or how the world was flooded and how this fits geology. Or how long the flood lasted, even though there's dates in the text about it, and we're going to look at that next week. Or wonder what it was like having all these animals on the ark. Probably stunk. We think about those when we read this, and we ought to have those sort of responses, and, and it ought to evoke sort of questions about that. But it's not what the flood narrative is primarily and ultimately about. Interestingly, the flood narrative is also not primarily about man's awful wickedness. Only occupies about two verses in the whole account to talk about that. It's not ultimately about Noah's goodness and obedience. Though that's in the text too. And this is probably going to be a little bit something that you're not used to hearing. The flood narrative is not ultimately and primarily about God's judgment on mankind and on the earth. In a chiastic structure, the parallel lines point like flashing arrows to the middle of the arrangement to tell us what the whole story is primarily about. And like flashing neon lights, Moses pens this so that the people of God, the children of Israel who have benefited from his goodness will see that this whole poem is ultimately about a faithful God. God who is faithful to his promises. A God who keeps his word. A God who remembers a man and his family and some animals in a boat. A God who remembers. And thus we would learn that the story, the theme of the flood poem has a hero. But that hero is not a boat builder or an obedient, faithful guy. The hero of the flood narrative is a sovereign and kind and gracious and just God. That's the hero of this flood story. And that sets it in contrast to every other myth out there. In every myth that we have recorded in human history of a flood narrative, we have a man as a hero or few men, few people as heroes overcoming the animosity of the gods, tricking the gods, pleasing the gods in some way. But only in the Hebrew account of our history do we have a sovereign God who determines himself, they will be saved because I will be faithful. And that in and of itself is why we must regard the entire flood narrative as a whole. We have to know what it's about. And my dear brothers and sisters, this story we read today is about the faithfulness of God. So whatever you take from these next three weeks of study, today's sermon and the others, whatever you take away from it, remind yourself consistently, meditate on this truth. God is faithful to you because he is faithful to his promises. He's faithful. He remembers. That's the big idea. But we want to look at the first three this morning. The righteous man and his sons. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. And Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is how the story begins. This is the Toledot, the genealogy of Noah. Now it is fascinating that we have that phrase there at the end, 
Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They will be repeated again, but not very often, and then they come up again, parallel line, at the end of the narrative. And they're important, not for now. Um, They're important because of what happens after the flood. Because they will be the ones, they will be the link between this man and us. This man and the chosen generation. This man and the patriarchs. This man and Abraham. This man and Christ. They become, they form the link. Especially one son named Shem forms that link. But what the text will focus on now, from the human perspective, is not the sons, but the man, Noah. Now, three times in this text, we see a description of Noah. He was a just man, perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. When the scripture, when the Hebrew scriptures use these patterns of three descriptors, they're generally describing, using it in a, in a way to describe the wholeness or completeness of something. You could use this numerical sense of three to add the, ad, the adverb um, uh, completely, fully, truly. So with the three in this, it's the, Noah was truly a just man. He was truly perfect in his generations. Noah truly walked with God. He, he was this. It wasn't just for show. This was not, he was not hypocritical. This is who he was. But what does this mean that Noah was a just man or a righteous man first of all? He was sadiq. Sadiq, the Hebrew word, common word for justice, righteousness, innocent, true. All the same sort of words. Very common description. Can mean either one in standing or one in practice. The word sadiq can be a description of an activity. A person is a righteous in their activity. It means they're moral, they're upright, they're good, they do the right thing. Or it can refer to one standing, a righteous person, a one who has a good standing, one who is innocent of charges brought against him, that sort of idea. The phrase perfect in his generations, that word generations is another word for the word age or culture. Perfect is the word used for the sacrificial lambs, blameless. So blameless as it relates to his age. What does that mean? It essentially means this. The things that everyone around him were doing, he wasn't doing. He wasn't guilty of the crimes they were committing. He was unlike them. So you get the idea, not only was Noah a righteous man, not only was he a good and upright man, but you get the idea he also was standing alone. He was blameless among his age. And then finally, Noah walked with God. He experienced communion with the divine. Now this particular phrase, walked with God, in its exact Hebrew framing, is only used two times in the Old Testament. One time here for Noah, and another time for one of Noah's ancestors named Enoch. Enoch walked with God, Noah walked with God. An interesting study, one that I think in the group tonight we'll probably talk a little bit about, Enoch and Noah, the only two that this walked with God is said about them, had very different experiences in this life. Very different outcomes. One of them got to escape life and death itself. Just taken up to heaven. And the other one went through the greatest hell on earth. And yet they both walked with God. Maybe that should put to rest the heresy that if you live right and do right, good things will happen to you. Because Noah walked with God, and yet he experienced great devastation and judgment. Together, these three phrases, or these three words, really paint one picture of this man. And in fact, the way it's read, we could read it backwards, and I think that adds a little clarity. Because Noah walked with God, he was blameless in all of his generations, all of his age. And as one who was not participating, he is recognized as righteous. So the 
causal element is walking with God. Understand, Noah wasn't righteous. I mean, Noah wasn't, didn't walk with God because he was righteous. Noah is seen as righteous in his walk with God. And that's the way it should be read. Now, there are two errors that we can easily come up with when we think of this phrase, especially because we live on this side of the resurrection. We live on this side of the fullness of the gospel. And because of that, sometimes when we read about righteous people, especially in the Old Testament, we can, we can too quickly dismiss what says and says, oh, well, no, no, it wasn't actually righteous. He just was imputed with right. He just had a standing of righteousness. But he, you know, it's, it's not, he was just as depraved as the rest of them. And in an effort to sort of fight against legalism, which I get because that, I don't like the phrase that says Noah was a righteous man. I go, oh, wait, no, there's none righteous. No, not one, right? The Bible says that. And so I, I, I kind of, and so we can, and I think it's an error to miss what the text is saying. This isn't referring to Noah's imputed righteousness, although I, I believe that was true. This isn't referring to God's, Noah's standing before God, how God viewed him, though I think that's true. It says in chapter seven that this is a reference to Noah's lifestyle. This is set in contrast to everyone else that did the opposite. This is a description that Noah was a good man. That Noah did good things and didn't do the bad things. And that can sometimes cause theologians, gospel theologians, to go, wait, I can't, that's tough. Because then that sounds like, you know, works righteousness. Like he earned it in some way or he gained it. Or God was, took pleasure in him because he was righteous. And if you're a good person, God will love you and... But we don't have to make that error because we simply recognize that Noah was a good and godly man. And that is an error. So one of the errors, I think, is saying there's nothing special about Noah. He was depraved like everybody else. Only righteous because God said it. He was actually a bad guy. But God just, for some, some dumb reason, God decided to save him and nobody else. No, that's not the way the text reads. True, he was depraved. And later on, we'll find out he gets drunk on his own grapes. But it ignores the plain meaning of text. The plain meaning of the text is that Noah was a good man. He's an upright guy. So then we can make the other error and assume that Noah's goodness in character is why God saved him. That he earned his salvation by being morally good and upright. The legalistic error of Noah did better and so we should do better. I hate that phrase, do better. But that's an error because that misses the text actually telling us why Noah was righteous. You see, there is a theological chronology in the text. I'm going to work backwards with it. Noah was obedient to build the ark because Noah was a righteous, upright man. That's what we would learn in the text, right? He was a righteous man. The text will tell us, therefore... He was obedient. Makes sense. But what verse, what phrase comes just before all of that? Verse 9 of chapter 6. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So if we work backwards, Noah was obedient because he was righteous. Noah was righteous because God gave him grace. You understand, Noah's righteousness chronologically, in a theological way, comes after and as a result of God's graciousness to him. It wasn't the cause of God's graciousness to him. Noah was righteous because God was good to Noah. Noah was motivated by God's grace to live an unhypocritical life. Noah didn't prove himself worthy of God's deliverance by his righteousness. But God, in his grace, enabled and allowed and equipped and gifted Noah with the ability to live uprightly and righteously. Don't get that twisted because it's error. Grace isn't for the righteous, but God's grace results in righteousness. Don't forget verse 9 comes before, or verse 8 comes before verse 9 in the text. 
So we see this just man, this righteous man, because God has been gracious to him. But now we see the next movement in the text. In contrast, the corrupt earth and its violence. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Once again, three times in the text, God says corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. In contrast to righteous, blameless, walking, corrupt, corrupt, corrupt. Same three applies here. We could use the word completely or fully or truly in front of the word corrupt. The earth was truly corrupt before God. The earth was wholly corrupt. Flesh flesh had uh, completely corrupted their way in the earth. And this is intended contrast. The word corrupt there, shachat, ruined, spoiled, marred, trashed. There are some ancient documents that use this word as a reference for in our modern terminology, used toilet paper, waste cloth. That's the idea of ruined. You don't want to touch it. It's filthy and it's spoiled. Now what's fascinating about this is, did you notice the object of the description of corruption here? It's the word earth. He doesn't say humankind. He doesn't say mankind. He doesn't say Adam. He says Eretz, earth. Now that shouldn't, if we read the whole story, that shouldn't cause a lot of problems because the previous text spent the whole time telling us that Adam, mankind, was utterly evil and wicked and depraved. His thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the emphasis there was not the word earth or eretz, it was the word mankind. So why the shift? Why the change here? Well, it's not super major theological, but it's subtle and it's interesting. The word for earth is eretz, the word for mankind is Adam. If Adam is man, land or earth is Eretz, is man's house, his habitation. And essentially, God is not describing the depravity of man in this text. He's already done that. He's describing the results of man's depravity. Because Adam is evil in his heart and deeds, the whole land... The whole earth is now ruined. So essentially what is being said here is we don't just need, God is saying, we don't just need to evict the residents. The whole building's condemned. The whole thing must be torn down. Another side theological note for you to think about, won't go into great details. Human- humanity, we, we as humans, we are intricately and intimately connected to the earth, aren't we? The Bible makes that very clear. God made Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then in the curse, in the fall, right? To dust you are, to dust you will return. God made Adam out of the, out of the ground, Eve out of Adam, and so every human being is from the ground. In this sense, now, now don't get me wrong, there's a sense in which the pagans use this wrongly. In this sense, the word mother earth makes some sense, right? She's like, she birthed us by God's will, right? We came from her, from the earth. And the idea is, in the text here, is I'm not just going to take out man, I'm taking out Mother Earth. The whole thing is corrupt and ruined. Now, why? Well, it's because of the residents, right? It's because of mankind. He said that already. We are the ones that corrupted it. I think it's kind of funny, a little bit ironic, that the progressives are actually correct Climate, climate catastrophe is man's fault. We are to blame for it. But not because of our carbon footprint or because we use straws. Okay? We're to fault because of our wickedness. It's a moral problem that causes this world to be on a collision course with destruction. And it started in the garden. By the way, if it's a moral problem, the solution must be a moral solution rather than a scientific one. It's a moral solution. And what is that moral solution? Well, redeem the inhabitants, 
Give them a new heart, because their heart is only evil continually. Give them a new heart, and then make them a new home. And that's exactly what God will do. At first, we're giving new hearts, and then one day he'll return and give a new home, a new Eretz, a new heaven, a new earth. It's ruined, he says. Now, this phrase, though, is very chilling right here. So God looked upon the earth. It's a poetic phrase because we already know that God has said the earth is corrupt. So why does it repeat it? So God looked or God saw. Well, this is probably a silly illustration and I may be the only one. But um, when you were a kid, to be like tough around your friends or something, did you ever like say something really stupid like, my mom is so stupid. And then your, your friends just like, they get these big eyes and you're like, and you turn around behind you, and mom is staring right at you. And that chilling, like sinking feeling in your heart, like, I'm dead. <laughs> right? This is much worse. And this is the emphasis in the Hebrew. God sees. He looks. Man in his corruption, who's corrupting the earth, who's destroying and making it not worthy of anything that he has made. He made it, and he made them, and they're ruining it with their wickedness and their evil. And they're going on and sinning, as, thinking that they can sin with impunity. And he sees. Do not mistake the apparent silence of God for lack of concern. Somehow we fooled him. He doesn't know. He knows. He looks on the earth. And the divine estimation is ruined. Spoiled. And he describes, once again, the source. All flesh, another word used for mankind. They ruined it. They ruined it in the whole earth. So in contrast to the righteous man who was only righteous because God is gracious to him. And the corrupt earth, who is fully corrupt because they've just, because every evil thought of their heart was only evil continually. In contrast to that, we have God, and what's he going to do about it? And now we have next movement in our chiasm. The ark of salvation, it's a provision. In the beginning of our text there, we see God's decision. And God said to Noah, verse 13, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. I forgot to mention this. Why the connection of violence with corruption? It's not the only sin. And in fact, not all violence is sin. I mean, if I were to just be objective about it, God does something pretty violent here, right? So it's not just that violence is sin. Unjust violence is wrong. And God's violence against the earth is justified. He just he showed why it was just. He made it. They ruined it. I can destroy it. But the connection of violence here, I think, is a description of the natural flow of a people, of a culture, that continually gives themselves up to godless fleshly ruin. And I think we could take note of this. That when a society enacts unrestrained violence against the vulnerable, the needy, the helpless, you can be sure that what has led to that unrestrained violence and mutilation has been the result of every intent of their, of their thoughts, of their heart being only evil continually. So violence is the natural outworking of the evil in man's heart. It wasn't the only sin that was committed, but it's the ultimate expression of a culture given over to its own devices. So God says, I will destroy them with the earth. I'm going to destroy the residents and the building. I'm going to tear it all down. Now what 
Moses does here is interesting in the way he arranges in, in the ark of salvation as provision. The speeches by God before the, before the flood begins. If you look over in chapter 7, verse 11, you actually have the next section. And it's marked, by the way, with, um, with Noah. And a particular date in verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. Just a quick note, I mentioned these different epics and myths. None of them have dates like this in them. Like this is a date in history put down here. Now, what's fascinating about the date is it's a date that begins with Noah's life, which is really strange. We, we date from like, well, before that, they, they dated from the beginning of civilization. And then now we today, we date sort of the... Christ and before Christ, after Christ, or the way people like to say it, and now common era and before common era and common. Anyways, we have these dating system, right? So the Bible begins the, the whole dating of Genesis with Noah's birthday. Like Noah is the guy. <laughs> so we're going to start counting in the 600th year and in the 601st year and so on and so on. And it starts with Noah. There are some theologians who believe that in verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the flood dwellers were on the earth. It's describing his lifespan and then um, there are some believe that it was Noah's birthday when the flood water, when they left the ark. Like his birthday was the 600th year because it's 1-1. One, one. It's like the first day of the month, the first uh, day of the uh, first month, first day of the month, 600 first year of his life, that some think that that's an indication that it was actually Noah's birthday. That's like saying we're, start, we're starting it with him. I don't know. A lot of speculation there. But it's weird, right? There's dates about the flood, and there's actually more dates in this part about the flood than any other particular biblical passage of Scripture. They don't just, Bible just doesn't usually give dates like this. But it does here. And so that sort of signals to us, okay, we're moving on in our second. The flood begins. So what, what the point is, what's happening between verse 13 and verse 10 of chapter 7 is all the stuff leading up to the beginning of the flood. We're still in God's provision. And I'm running out of time as I knew I would. So I'm going to go very quickly through this. You can read this section on your own. We already read it once, but it's 6.13 through 7.10. And what we find here is that God first gives an announcement. He says, I'm going to destroy. He gives two speeches. The first speech, he gives an announcement. I'm going to destroy both them and the earth. And then he gives instruction. Make yourself an ark. Then he gives a second announcement. I myself am going to bring floodwaters to destroy all flesh. Then he gives second instruction. You shall go into the ark. And this time he adds to that and says, bring family and food and animals. And then there's the execution in verse 5, chapter 7. Um, I'm sorry, the, the execution. Um, thus, at the end of chapter 6, thus Noah did. According to all God's So it's really simple. And I'm just going to summarize it. God says, I'm going to make a provision for you. Go into the ark. Okay, I'm going to destroy the earth. Go into the ark. Take with you food and, and animals and family. And then at the end it goes, and so Noah went into the ark. Okay? Very simple layout. But then chapter 7, he gives a second speech God does. And now there is the instruction repeated again. Come into the ark and bring the food and family. Or bring the family and animals. And then this additional part about the clean animals and unclean animals. Bring seven likely pairs. So 14 of the clean animals and, and two pair each of the unclean animals, bring all the animals in. And then an announcement. After seven days, I will cause it to rain, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy all living things. And then Noah's execution in verse 5. So Noah did, according to all the Lord commanded him. Kind of repetition. Noah did it. So Noah did it. And then a quick little break in verse 6. Uh, oh, it was the 600th year of Noah's life. Okay, now back to the story. And then we have the final execution in verses 7 through 10. But this time... Instead of the execution of Noah, which that's what it was. It was Noah did, Noah did, and then the final one, so God did. So God brought floodwaters on the earth. And then the next session begins when it happened. So you get the idea. Announcement. I'm going to bring judgment. Here's your provision. Here's how you're going to be saved. I'm going to bring judgment. Here's how you're going to be saved. Okay, God, I'm going to get in the ark. Get in the ark, Noah. Because I'm bringing judgment, and here's how you're going to be saved. I'll do everything you say. I'm getting in the ark. And then God brings judgment. And that's the flow of the text. 
Now, there's a lot here, and the reason why I tried to break it down like this is because sometimes we miss the theological elements because of all the kind of rambling about the animals and that sort of stuff there. But understand, first of all, that in the theological development, we see God saw, God speaks, God acts. Before we saw God grieving, now God is acting. It's as if God, the judge of all the earth, wipes his tears away and says, now it's time to bring the judgment. Second, we see the judgment is declared. And this itself is a significant part of the story. There is real consequence, real catastrophic consequence to humanity's moral wickedness. He brings destruction. Humanity cannot continue to sin with impunity. God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. He says, it is appointed unto men once to die, and then judgment. Judge the God, and the judge of all the earth will do right. But we also see in this text, the Lord is gracious. In fact, some have said, and I think they're probably right, that the whole narrative of the flood is sort of a commentary of Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And how did he find grace in the eyes of the Lord? There's this big boat. And that's how he found grace. Kenneth Matthews writes this, Although the announcement of God is impending doom, the focus of the divine degree turns immediately in each case to the detailed instructions for building and equipping the ark for Noah's safety and the deliverance of his creatures. Doom, but provision. Doom, but there's an ark. Doom, but get into the ark. It's constant in the text. And this is the ark, the means of our salvation, or Noah's salvation. Just a quick, few quick notes, because we won't have time next week. We have no idea what gopher wood is. It's not related to the animal gopher. The Hebrew word is gopher. <laughs> so they just transliterated it because they didn't know what it was. But it's wood. We're not really sure how big a cube it is. We, we have an idea, but this was ancient times. And there's all sorts of civilizations that have various descriptions of a cubit, which is the measurement from the tip of the finger to the elbow of an adult male. Well, there's a lot of different sizes of humans. So what do we know? But... We could estimate that it's about 510 feet long, this Ark of Salvation, this Tiva, this box, which if, you're th- if you don't think in terms of measurements, uh, think about five of our church buildings stacked that way. So like five of these buildings going that way, which works out because it's about the same width, about 85 feet, a little bit narrower than this building, but about 85 feet. So think this auditorium five times going that way and then 51 feet high, think about two of these buildings. And that's the ark, right? If you can imagine that. Scientists have said that could easily, comfortably even have fit the number of kinds, if you understand what that is, of animals um, alive at that time, of the two of each kind. But one of the things, that, and oh, and then the window on top. What that means, it's really hard to tell. In the Hebrew, that word window there could literally be translated like, like moon roof. Like it's just like an opening, a skylight. It was covered, but allows light in. And it was for allowing light into the ark. So that they wouldn't be in dark the whole time. But what's fascinating about this is God planned this thing out perfectly. Not one detail was missing. But then I guess that's what we should expect from the Almighty when he determines to save his people. He'll plan it out perfectly and execute it perfectly. And this is how I simply want to close our time. If God was so thorough to provide physical salvation for the momentary life of Noah, will he not also provide eternal life for all who have received his grace? God ordained and planned the ark as a place of safety and as A.W. Pink said, the only place of deliverance from the wrath to come. And an ark was prepared to save the mortal from physical death. But then it was said of Jesus Christ, a body you have prepared for me to save sinners from eternal death. And so it is not... Uh, pushing it, it is not somehow reading into the text to say that the, Jesus is our spiritual and eternal ark of salvation. 
our provision through God's judgment. All who enter into Christ will pass safely through God's judgment. The torrents of divine wrath will beat upon a wooden boat, just as divine wrath beat upon the immortal Son of God. And just as the boat made it through and came to rest on God's mountain, so Jesus will through death and resurrection come to rest on his holy hill. And just as Noah's assurance was not actually in his righteousness and obedience, but at the end of the day, what did he hope in? The boat. At the end of the day, our assurance is not in our righteousness or obedience, but in Jesus. Because the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, life, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So what we take away is the ark and Noah, simply this, rest in Jesus for your eternal life to make it through the judgment of God. He's the only way. Rest in Jesus.